Okay, we're going to... Hey, it works. All right. Very good. Thank you. Well, slowly but surely, all of these little bugs are getting taken care of, and uh, we'll get back to our uh, good times together. Let's pray together. Father, as your people gather in this house today, we feel the sense of urgency to hear from you. We know, Lord, that all through the week, our minds and our hearts have been saturated and bombarded by messages from the world. And Father, the urgencies of life have just seemed to overtake us. But yet, Lord, when we come together in your house, there's something you want us to remember. There is something you want us to do. There is something that you want us to be thankful for. And so today, Father, we pray that you would speak to whatever the need of our heart may be in ways that would even surprise us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in speaking with many of you, I understand that with the loss of memory is a common and growing problem. All right? Would you say that's true? Sure. And so people say, I know the cause. I know the reason. I know why we're losing our memories. Some people would say it's because of uh, foods we eat. Too much of this, too much of that. And so that's causing us to lose our memories. Other people said, oh, it's just age. It's just age. And then other people will turn around and say, well, it's our health. You know, I mean, you know, we can't live forever. And so one of the things that goes is the memory. And so we kind of push that aside. I was reading an article in the paper the other day and they were doing a study. And you know what the study showed? It showed that one of the causes of the loss of memory is the use of high tech. The use of high tech. And so these people did a study and they discovered that people that use smartphones, that use smartphones and computers and rely upon them, their capacity for memory begins to degrade. All right? And so all of you looking on your phone right now and all of you who are checking your email and put it away for a minute because you got something here that you, I'm going to save you some brain cells. So this is what happens to us as we get caught in this. And I'm a, uh, I have to say I'm a victim of that too, you know. I don't have to memorize anybody's phone number anymore. I just put in their first few digits, I mean, first few alpha letters of their name and boy, it just comes up. Everything comes up. And so that's what's happening to us. Now, that was uh, some of the causes, but then there's some great concern. The loss of memory is not a new problem. In fact, God addressed it early on in the New Testament. In Psalms 103, verse 2, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Forget none of his benefits. So it's like God was looking into the future and he says, I know what you guys are going to end up doing. You're going to end up forgetting. You're going to end up forgetting. He says, I don't want you to do that. So do not forget the benefits of the Lord. God knows that we have short memories when it comes to who he is and what he does in our lives. So God has established various feasts, festivals, traditions, and ordinances to serve as as memory aids. And that's why it's so great that today we had the Lord's Supper. Because it was a way to remember the death of Christ for us. And I know for some of us here, it was just, ah, the Lord's Supper again. Must be the first of the month. Yes, that's what it is. It's the first Sunday of the month. You see? But God gives us these things on purpose. Because he knows that we have short memories. 
When it comes to the, uh, God's acts of grace and mercy, God knows that we are susceptible to spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. And so, when we have to be careful then and guard against that. So, that brings up many challenges to us. With all the things that we're supposed to remember, what should we remember? God wants us to remember important acts, such as our redemption from sin. A provision from God with eternal consequences. Okay? And so, of all the things that God wants you to remember, perhaps... Remembering to worship Him one day a week. Perhaps to give according to His work and all of this kind of stuff. Of all the things that God wants us to remember is our redemption from sin. And that's one of the lessons that comes to us as we look at the Exodus, the accounts and events of the Exodus. And so He wants us to remember our redemption. What is redemption? Okay? Redemption is a very large word, all right? And sometimes it's scary to people. But it doesn't have to be. If I can do it this way, redemption means literally to buy back. To buy back. In fact, it was used very picturesquely in the Bible of a slave being bought in the slave market. All right? So when you say redeemed, it means being purchased out of the slave market. You're free. You're free. You know, you're coming. And so he says to them this word redemption. It's a very good word. It's one that bring, should bring great joy to our heart. Freedom from the slavery and bondage of sin and its consequences. If you look at Titus chapter 2 verse 14. It says this about Christ Jesus. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. To buy us out of the slave market of sin. From every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so this is the picture that is given to us. And that's what God wants us to remember. Of all the things that God wants us to remember. He wants us to remember redemption. If you take all of these passages together, it means to, to remember how we were rescued and released from sin by someone paying a price or a ransom. All right? This redemption did not come without great cost. And we will see that demonstrated in the accounts and the events leading up to the exodus. This is probably perhaps one of the great challenges that we have, not in just, just our generation, but every generation, okay? I'm challenged with it, but my children are challenged with it. My grandchildren are challenged with this. Why? Because there's a battle going on for memory space in our brains and in our hearts. Because our memory space is competing with negative thoughts, Our memories are being filled with all kinds of thoughts about the urgent. How many of you right now are beginning to think, tomorrow's Monday, I got to go into the office. What did I promise somebody I was going to do on Monday? And your brain is fighting desperately to remember something important. And God says, remember your redemption. Remember your redemption. So this is a great challenge. But it is one that we all face and we have to work on together. 
So, as we go back into the accounts of the, uh, of the last plague in Egypt, and the events leading to the, uh, to the Passover and into the ex- great exodus, we have to remember that God wants us to remember the topic of redemption. And so, there's too many verses to cover in just a simple, you know, kind of gloss over. So, I broke it up, and we're going to approach this by looking at remembering redemption in the eyes and lives of different characters. Okay? So, the first character is remembering redemption through the eyes and lives of the Egyptians. Of the Egyptians. This is found in, the, in Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Now, you know and I know that this was the account of where God told Pharaoh to let his people go and to release them. After 400 years, after over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Well, what was Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh's response wasn't a simple, no, you can't go. It wasn't anything like that. But it was a defiant refusal. It was a defiant refusal. And it took nine plagues to get him to change his mind. With the tenth one being the final uh, nail. Uh, that drove it through. Okay? And so, when you read about the ninth plague, it was three days of bone-chilling darkness. And this set the stage for the tenth plague, which was the taking of the life of the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt. Look at verse 4 and to 6 of chapter 11. 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 4 to 6. Moses th- said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. All the firstborn of the cattle as well. Verse 6, Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, And such as shall never be again. This was going to be a plague of epic proportions. They had never seen anything like this. They will never see anything like this again. Is what God was saying. And so this conversation probably took place. During the uh, Moses uh, discussion with Pharaoh. uh, Just before the darkness came. And so this was all included in that because Moses never went back to Pharaoh after he predicted about the darkness. But with the tenth and final plague, God secures the redemption of his people and also pronounces final judgment on the gods of Egypt. This is in chapter 12, verse 12. So he does this so that he decisively shows that he is the Lord. Now, you've probably heard this story a million times, all right? You've probably heard it a million times. But one of the, there are several questions that come up. One of the questions is, why the firstborn? Why did God choose to take the life of the firstborn? Why didn't he just take the life of the Pharaoh and just end the whole thing? <laughs> you know, sometimes you wonder, God, you know, uh, you think differently than we do, all right? But he took the life of the firstborn. Why? Because they're special. 
In most cultures, the firstborn male is seen as the center and key to the future of the family. All right? This is the way that it has been. And so this is the way that it goes. And so at the time of the pharaohs and the time of the Egyptians' people, this was the case. They valued the firstborn a lot. In fact, the Egyptians, above all of the other cultures, took it even one step further. They said they were sacred. They were sacred. The Egyptians took it further and considered the firstborn as being, as it were, God. Pharaoh's son was going to inherit and be the next God of Egypt. All right? So he was elevated mightily in this case. Scripturally, scripturally, God called Israelite his firstborn. In chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, you'll remember that. He said, Pharaoh... Why are you afflicting my firstborn? You know, why are you afflicting them? It's to show how much value and how much care he had for his children, the Israelites. Now, there's also scripturally, there's a principle that's involved here. Fundamentally, there are laws of our lives and deeds and how they will be judged. For example, in Matthew chapter 7... Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. But look at verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measures, it will be measured to you. So God says, hey, hey, if you're going to do this to my my kids, I'm going to do this to your kids. All right? And we all know the famous passage also in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And so why did God take the firstborn of Egypt? It was because they were special, they were sacred, and he was operating by the principles of life that existed, that he had given long time ago. All right? That's what he was doing. He was just treating Pharaoh the way that he had been treating his children. And so that's why he took the firstborn. Now, there's a second question, okay? Are you ready for this? Was God just in taking the lives of the firstborn? Was he just in doing that? Well, you have to look at it. You have to back up. First of all, we know that mankind has inherited Adam's sin nature and natural birth. We know this, that all of us are born sinners. All of us have been born with that sin nature. Look at Psalms chapter 51, verse 5. Behold, this is what David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And so when we are born, we come factory equipped with a sin nature. We are sinners by birth. We know that. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, what the Apostle Paul said about this, he said, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, that sounds like a lot of double talk. Let me just simplify it. All it says is all of us are sinners. All of us are sinners, right from the very get-go. Now, How does God look upon this sin nature? How does God look upon our sin? Well, sin in God's eyes is a capital offense. 
And it's punishable by death. If you go to Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. We are born sinners. As sinners we are punished. We are under the punishment of death. We are under the sentence of death. Well. When we see this happening, we begin to wonder, we begin to understand a little bit clearer. But in comes God, in comes God, and God is, is righteous and just. God is righteous and just. In Psalms 89, verse 14, 89, verse 14, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So, God could have executed the sentence of death on any one of us, on any one of us, firstborn, 12th born, 98th born. It didn't matter. All right. Why? Because we're all guilty. We're all under that sentence. But God decided is righteous and he is just in what he does. Did you notice that in all the plagues, God provided a way out? God provided a way out. All Pharaoh had to do was heed the warnings he was given, repent, and let God's people go. Clear as a bell. Let my people go. No. <laughs> okay, here it comes. You know, that's what God did. God was also merciful when the plagues did come. God showed mercy by reversing them. He reversed them. Moses came back. I mean, Moses would go back into the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh would say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Could you please get rid of these frogs? Could you please, you know, take away the locusts? Can you do all of those kinds of things? Sure enough, Moses prayed and they were reversed. Again and again and again. God was patient. God was merciful to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Now, if anyone needed redemption, it would be the Egyptians. Why? Because of the rejection, the rebellion, the cruelty, and the idolatry. The list goes on and on and on. And yet people would stop, they would fold their arms, and they would say, what kind of God is this that would put this kind of suffering on people? He did it on people who were quite cruel. People who had... had uh, had very much defiantly put their face, their fist in the face of God. It was pride, we know, in the end, that got him. It was Pharaoh's pride. And that raises a question for each of us. What keeps us from seeing our need for redemption? I had a person one time, and he was the husband of one of our church members, and no matter how kind people were, no matter how many people showed kindness to them and, 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 and shared the gospel with them, the guy just, just absolutely would have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And he would come up with one excuse after another, you know. But this, but that, you know, all this over. Well, finally one day, me and him had a, had a just, it was one of those God moments and he just had one of these uh, moments where he let down his guard and he just said, you know, Pastor, he said, the one reason I'm not accepting Christ is because I am blankety-blank prideful. I just want to let you know that. And it's really hard for me to admit that I'm a sinner and that I need God to bail me out. 
It was pride. It was pride. And so just like the just like the Egyptians, just like Pharaoh, what keeps us from seeing our need for redemption? It could be our pride. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 said this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God is giving fair warning. God is giving fair warning. I'm not trying to scold anybody. I'm not trying to be ugly to anybody. But if you are in this room today and you are, have not accepted Christ as your Savior and the problem is pride or stubbornness or obstinance, whatever you want to call it, remember, God finally triumphed. God finally had His way. And He will have His way. And so, heed the warning. Heed the warning and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. As we move on, we begin to see remembering our redemption through the eyes and lives of the Israelites. This is found in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 28, and so on and so forth. Okay, before unleashing the tenth plague, God spoke to Moses, and he instituted the Passover. He instituted the Passover. Now, I was sitting there, and I was saying to myself, why did God have to go to all the trouble of instituting a Passover? Okay? Because you remember up to this point, especially in the last few plagues, the Israelites were not affected directly by the plagues. Did you notice that? Remember the plague of darkness? It was dark everywhere except where? Where the Jews lived. Okay? They're the only ones that had light going on. You see? And so wherever some of these plagues were hitting, somehow God surrounded them and made sure they were not affected. Now, when he instituted the Passover, I'm sure it was a shock to some of the Jewish people. They would say, why do we need to have a Passover? God hasn't touched us for all these other plagues, and he'll do the same. No, God instituted the Passover for a very specific reason. And so let's take a look. Now, you know that the Passover involves the lamb, it involves the bread, uh, unleavened bread. And so, I'm not a Jewish person, I did not grow up a Jewish person, I did not celebrate on holidays. So, as I was, if I, every time I study this, I'm fascinated by the, the insights that are given. The instructions for the lamb, this is found in verses 1 through 11. Okay, let me summarize it for you. God would send a destroyer to visit all the homes in Egypt. We just read in chapter uh, 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 earlier in, in verses 4 to 6. We read it, about it, all right? He would visit death on the firstborn. Now, God wasn't going to let this just happen. He turned around. He says, I'm going to make a provision for my people. What is it? Well, on the 10th day of the first month of the new religious calendar year, somewhere around March, April, each household would choose an unblemished lamb about a year old or a kid goat suitable to feed everyone in the household so we all go marching down to the ntuc there in goshen and we all start hunting around for this unblemished lamb and so we get this unblemished lamb and then guess what we take it home for four days we take it home for about four days and while he's at our home what do we do oh the kids play with him you know the parents are feeding him they get attached they begin to identify with this lamb for 4 days 
Then on that fourth day, at twilight, they had to kill the lamb. They had to slay the lamb. And so they would slit his throat, and when they did, they would take the blood, collect the blood, and they, would put, they were instructed to put it over the doorpost and to put it on the two side posts of the doors. Okay? Now, why, was they, why were they told to do that? It was because, <clears throat> well, let's go back to the lamb. The lamb gets roasted, and, he's, and it's served along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The bitter herbs were to, as a reminder to the people about the terrible times they had in Egypt. Okay, so that's what that part was. And then they were uh, even to dress properly for this occasion. This is the first Passover, all right? And the reason they had to, they had to dress like they were ready to have a quick getaway, Okay. All right. So if I, were to, if I were to translate it this way, I would come to your home for a meal, let's say, and, 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 or I would invite you to my home. And if you saw me at the door of the house, I had my coat on, I had my luggage there, I had my shoes on, you would say, you don't plan to stay long, do you? No, it's because I'm getting ready for a quick getaway. And that's exactly what happened. He says, tuck your, tuck your, your tunic in your belt. Get ready. This, things are going to really start happening fast. And so that was the first Passover. And sure enough, sure enough, on that faithful night, the Lord would go through the land of Egypt and the firstborn man of beast would die. But the firstborn of the households where the doors had blood on them would not die. This was in verses 12 through 13. So this became very important. Because their redemption was based upon the death of another, the lamb. Okay? That's the point. Our redemption is not cheap. It is not without cost. It costs the life of a lamb. It costs the life of Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the important points that we need to keep in mind as we go through this remembering the redemption that we have now let's hurry on to the instructions for the unleavened bread why is the unleavened bread important okay unleavened bread means basically bread without yeast it's just dough it's just dough it doesn't rise you know I love, okay, I got a weakness for breads, okay? And especially breads that are very moist and tasty. And I know I'm making you hungry, okay? But all of those kinds of things. And so what happens here is this was just going to be dough. It's just going to be dough without the yeast. So it's not rising. Why no yeast? Now, it would be hard to understand this, except that the New Testament sheds light on this. The yeast was a symbol of... Of sin. It was a symbol of sin. How do we know this? Well, Jesus associated yeast with sin. Look at what he said in Luke chapter uh, 12, verse 1. He, he says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people were gathered together and that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So what was Jesus doing? He was associating yeast with sin. Now, it doesn't stop there because the Apostle Paul picked up on this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
The Apostle Paul had to say this, starting with verse 6 to 8. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do not know that this little, that a little leaven, a little yeast, leaven uh, the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed, he says in verse 7 and then for 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, leavened bread, bread with yeast in it, comes out to being sin, a life with sin. And so that's what the meaning was. So, what is the connection then between the lamb and the bread? Well, there is a connection between the two. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. And it says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the test... Whoops. Yeah, that's right. 2 Timothy... Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. What's the connection? In the Passover, he saves us. In the unleavened bread, he sets us aside for holy living. Now, have you ever thought about that? We're saved from sin, but we're also saved to holy living. All right? There's two parts to this whole thing. So for you and I to sit there, for you and I to read this, for you and I to hear this and just say, I'm saved. I'm okay. I'm all right. If my plane gets, if, if, if something awful happens to me today, I'm going, I know I'm going to heaven. Nah, there's a second part to this thing. We are saved to be set apart from God, for God, by our holy living. Okay? So, that's where we are with this bit about uh, yeast. Okay? So, it took faith for God's people to follow all these instructions. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm wondering... I'm a Jewish person in Egypt. I'm getting impatient with God because he, he sure has taken his time with Pharaoh. And I, I'd sure like to get out of here really quick. And so it, Moses comes back and instead of saying, okay, at 12.01 or 12.02, after God does his thing, you're, we're out of here. All right? But he doesn't say that. He says, no, I want you guys to prepare a meal. And I want you to have this, this, and this. I want you to come dressed properly because when things begin to happen, it's really going to happen fast. Now, be honest. How many of us would be willing to listen to that? I mean, we just went through ten of the, nine of these things and nothing like this ever happened. You see? But this is what happened. And so God puts, it, puts uh, these instructions in front of him. The instructions for the Passover involving the lamb and the bread were preparing God's people for their eventual redemption. For their eventual redemption. Well, was there another reason that he did this? Yes. It's the memorialization of the Passover. It's the setting up. It's the institutionalizing of the Passover. 
This is found in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 and 28. If you look at verses 24 and 25, it says this, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall observe this rite. What rite? The Passover and the unleavened bread. He says, you've got to remember this. And who are you going to remember this to? You're going to do this for your children forever and ever, he says. And verse 28 tells us God's people obeyed. God's people obeyed. The point. If you look at the events of the Exodus from, from the viewpoint of the Israelites, it held this. It was an extremely important event. The Israelites were to remember this redemption out of Egypt by observing the Passover every generation, every year for every generation. So you see? And so that's how important God said this was. Remember what I did for you out of Egypt. And if I can say it in maybe a more contemporary way, remember how you were saved from your bondage of sin. All the time, all the time, regularly, consistently. Well, we also have to look at this remembering redemption through the eyes of the Lord. Why did God really want the people to remember? It's because the redemption was, a, was God exercising his power in verses, chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. Ex- enormous amount of power to, do, to pull this off, Okay. He was exercising his power. He was fulfilling his promises. You know, he got even to the point where he says, remember I told you that if you're a Jewish person, you return to your Egyptian neighbor and you are to ask him for gold and silver and he'll give it to you? I promise you that will happen. And that's exactly what happened in verses 31 to 36. The redemption was God rescuing his people. He had said he would. And he did. He rescued them. This night was truly to be remembered. If you look at Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 42. We would see this happening. In verse 42. This memorable night. And he says. He says to them. This, it is a night to be observed for the Lord. For having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. God made no bones about it. He wanted this to be remembered. He wanted this to be remembered. Who is the God who redeems? Who is the God who redeems? The God of the Bible is truly mighty, He is truly trustworthy. He is truly full of mercy. The God of the Bible is not a possession. He is a person. All right. There's a difference there. All right. He is a person. He is like no other. He is like no idol or goal or dream or aspiration. He is. He is. But knowing and walking with God Almighty. That is the important thing. That is the important thing. This is the God of redemption. This is what we can gather from this account here. And why do I bring this up? 
I guess I've lived long enough to observe and to experience how people think about God. Okay? And even in America, uh, where I came from, and especially in Texas, called the Bible Belt, I am really saddened to see how people today think of God. How they think of God. They think of him as the force. They think of him as the teacher. They think of him as this. They think of him as kind of the magic bullet. They think of him as the one who will give me everything I want if I just say the right prayer. People forget that God is God Almighty. And he is trustworthy. And that he is powerful. And he is worthy of our worship. If there's a vision or a dream that I would have for Grace Baptist Church is that we never denigrate or reduce our vision of God. That he never comes second to anything. God has to be first. And that we never ever forget that. And so this is what happens here is that God truly demonstrated. If you look at his role in all of these events and accounts of the Exodus, he showed all of these things. God's redemption of his people out of Egypt revealed the one and only true God. Now, there's one more group that I want to expose you to, and that is remembering the redemption through the eyes of the firstborn. This was in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. Okay? And so God was extremely intent on making sure his people would remember their redemption out of uh, Egypt. Over and over again, he reminded them to explain what God did in Egypt to redeem his people. So he instituted another memory aid, another memory aid. And this was one that was going to be practiced when they got to the promised land. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me, he says. This was going to be a powerful reminder to people about what God had done in Egypt. Why the firstborn son of each family? Because in the minds of the Jewish people, the firstborn had special rights, such as a bigger part of the inheritance. He had a special role. The firstborn represented uh, the whole family. They represented uh, everybody in the family. It's much like, for example, do you remember the, the Jewish people coming and offering the first fruits of a harvest? They didn't, it was a way of signifying that this represents the whole harvest. We're giving you the whole thing, God. We're dedicating this whole thing to you. And here is a sign or, uh, of what we are doing. And the, first, uh, the firstborn of a family would represent that. And so, when, when you get to this, how is the, he said that they would be redeemed. How is the firstborn redeemed? Well, the firstborn of, well, let's start with animals. The firstborn of clean animals, these were the ones suitable for offerings to God, could be redeemed by being sacrificed. Okay? So, if you, if you were raising uh, birds, I suppose you could have taken one of those birds and you could have sacrificed it. Okay? That would be an acceptable way of redeeming the whole flock of birds that you were raising. The firstborn of unclean animals, like a donkey, for example, 
they were killed, you could either kill it and not offer it at all, or you can provide a suitable animal sacrifice as a substitute. This is found in chapter 13, verse 13. And let me read it because it's, you need to get this point. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now notice here. Notice here that man and unclean animals were put in the same category. <laughs> Interesting, huh? So if God was concerned, you guys are unclean. Okay? You can be redeemed, though, by an animal sacrifice. A suitable animal sacrifice. And so that was how one way it could be done. So... How could we redeem the firstborn? Well, you know later that it evolved into a system where, for example, in Numbers 18, you could be redeemed with money. Five shekels of silver were paid to the temple, and you could be, that would be a symbol of your being redeemed. Parents could dedicate their children and the, to work and worship in the temple. That was another way. This is what Hannah did with Samuel. Okay? And, of course, we just said that you could offer a sacrifice in his place. Now the point is this. The point is this. When God comes up with this redeeming the firstborn. He says all of this again is to help you as a memory aid. To remember what I did for you when I brought you out of Egypt. Okay. The right of redeeming the firstborn son of a family. Served as another reminder of God's deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. Now all this to say. That we have to include one more group. We looked at the Egyptians. We looked at the Israelites. We looked at the God himself who was participating. And we looked at the redemption in the eyes, through the eyes and life of the firstborn. The last one is yourself and me. Remembering redemption through your eyes and life. The parallels between the events of the Exodus and your life generally are obvious. The need for redemption from the bondage of sin. Romans chapter 3 tells us that we are all under sin. You can be and are redeemed. How? By Jesus the Lamb of God. John chapter 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. There has been a lamb provided for us. Also, the death of Christ for us. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. He died in our place so we would not have to die. And it says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. But if you continue on, you see that happening. It's also the blood of Christ that saves us. Just like the blood of the lamb that was put over the doorpost, also, as the Israelites were saved by that, so are we. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished 
and spotless the blood of Christ. Okay? So the connection is there. The connection is there. And of course, if we had time, we could read the sacrifice of Christ which saves and sets us apart in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But the, the parallels, the connection is too close for us to ignore. It's too close for us to ignore. The parallels between the events of the Exodus and your life here at GBC specifically are obvious. We are to remember the wondrous works and greatness of our God. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 tells us, From the days of our youth, we are not to forget the Creator. But also, every day of our lives, we are not to forget the things that God has done. First Chronicles chapter 16 verse 12 tells us that in your reading that's on the screen now. All of this brought together. Fight the spiritual amnesia that so easily besets us. Forget your own virtues and achievements and remember God's virtues and His achievements. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, how, how can this work out? I was brought back to memory a family that I knew in Florida. And they had very humble beginnings. They were immigrants to this country. And by sheer force and God's grace, they achieved a lot. It was the immigrant Cinderella story. Came over with nothing in their pockets. He became a doctor. She became a successful restaurant owner, the wife. And they raised two beautiful children who are all doctors also now. Okay? So, I asked them one time, I said, how, 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 how do you help your children to understand your history of your family? And you know what the mother said to me? She said, we took our kids on a road trip. Road trip? What do you mean? We took, we took off a few weeks from work, and we went and visited all the places we lived and worked. And they said, our children had never seen these places, or they were too, too young to remember. And they forgot about how hard mom and dad worked. They forgot all of the, the struggles that they had. And how at times they just didn't even know where the food was going to come from. They did not realize that their mom, before they, she, she went into the restaurant business, that she cleaned houses. And that's how she fed the family while the husband was going to school. And stuff like that. But they drove him to the schools. They drove him to their homes. They drove him to their apartments. And all of that stuff. They wanted them to remember. They wanted them to remember. That what they enjoyed today. Came at a great cost. In the same way. Folks. We have to do the same thing. We have to take our children. And future generations. Of our church members. Or whoever. And we have to take them down the road. And show them. What God has done. Okay? We have to do that. Maybe it'll be this faith journey we're going through the building. I don't know how God's going to work this, but He's going to do it. Oh, by the way, tomorrow they start the demolition. All right? They got the, they got the permit, and tomorrow starts the demolition. But God is taking us down this road. All right? My wife, I know we're being late here. My wife, at Christmas time, she gathered the family together, all 30-something of us. 
And she says, we are going to remember the Christmas story. And she assigned all 14 grandchildren a role. Of course, the youngest one was baby Jesus. She had some read the scriptures. She had some act out, be the king. Some be the animals, you know. Some of them really got into that role. They were walking around all fours and everything like that. And then my role was to, to, was to you know, be grandpa, you know, and make sense of all this that was going on. It's a tradition now. And it's, we, don't, we haven't been back for Christmas too often. But when we are back, we bring the family together. And it's in hopes of instilling these memories in our children. And you might have some too. I dare say some of us here are probably more fanatical about Chinese New Year than we are about sharing with our loved ones how we were saved and what God is doing in our life. But shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we be? Just like, there's nothing wrong with celebrating Chinese New Year. I'm not against Chinese New Year, so don't fill my email box, all right? Honestly, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you're doing it. But I think it's just as important that we remind our people over and over again about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Okay? Let's pray. Father, for some of us, it's been a very long week. For some of us, it's been a long hour and 15 minutes or 30 minutes. But Father, I pray that whatever the case may be, that you have said what you needed to say and want to say. I pray, Father, that you would bless our people greatly. And Father, as we are blessed by you, that we do not forget the Lord and none of his benefits. Let us remember your virtues and your achievements. And let's forget our own. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our time is up, and uh, I apologize to you. Um, But um, we'll just go ahead and dismiss you now. Uh, There's classes starting, and I know we're on a tight schedule, so that'll be it. Thank you so much.